Happy Wednesday, everyone. I hope you're having a good day today and a blessed week so far. It's good to be back with you as we jump into chapter 15 of Matthew. I hope that over these last several weeks, you've been blessed by our time together. I hope it's been helpful, informative, and not just from the standpoint of more information and factual knowledge, but hopefully, if you're anything like I am in the reading and studying of God's Word, you discover so many things about your own life, your own faith practice through the examples of those characters whom Jesus interacted with thousands of years ago and how their stories continue to relate very much to us even in the living of these days. Once again, we'll be in Matthew chapter 15 here in just a moment. I'd also like to remind you that as we're going through the coming weeks, even though we will be opening up for Sunday worship here at Little Rock, our game plan is to continue with the recordings of our Sunday school lessons and Bible study times in order that you may connect with us through discipleship and those opportunities as well. Again, I appreciate the kind comments, the support that you've offered over these last probably couple of months now, and we're looking forward to sharing this journey as we go through the future as well. Would you bow with me as we begin this time with a season of prayer? Heavenly Father, for the gift of this Wednesday, we stop and we give you praise. Lord, we are grateful for every moment of every day, for the ways in which we see and feel and encounter your power and presence, and for the opportunities that we have to embody that presence to other people. Lord, you have given us a tremendous ministry to continue in as your followers. Lord, it's a great calling. It's not one that's often easy. In fact, it's going to take everything that we can muster. But more than that, it takes the strength that you fill us with day by day. Father, I ask for your hand of blessing to be with all of my brothers and sisters as they're viewing this time. Be with whatever needs may be pressing on their hearts and their minds on this occasion and give them the confidence, the peace, the reassurance that you are with them now and in the journey to come. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, Rock, and Redeemer. Amen. Chapter 15 becomes yet another turning point in Jesus' ministry, and it's going to indicate just how some of the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders has expanded. It's moved out beyond the sphere of Galilee, the primary base of Jesus' ministry, and we find as today's text opens that a delegation of religious leaders have come all the way from Jerusalem, the hub, the centerpiece, if you will, of the Jewish faith. And now I believe those religious leaders realize they're dealing with more than what we would call a local threat. This threat is going to be much greater. And so when things are of that nature, you have to send in, as we say, reinforcements. And that's the point upon which we open chapter 15 today. Join with me. Chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father 
and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you but you say that whoever tells father or mother, whatever support you might have had from me is given to God, then that person need not honor the father. So for the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God, you hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but with their hearts they are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. It may not seem to be that big of a deal, that big of an issue that's being raised here, and we may not even think twice about this text. Let's move along to the story of the Canaanite woman's faith or the the feeding of the multitude at the close of chapter 15, but it's an important little tidbit to see what's going on in this moment between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. As I mentioned a moment ago, the fact that they have made such a lengthy journey from Jerusalem to Galilee to see, to observe, to experience Jesus for themselves indicates that they know that this threat is not going to go away on its own. It's not going to go away lightly. And as the story of Matthew's gospel continues to unfold, we're going to find that that tension is going to grow. It's going to become even thicker. It's going to be palpable. It's going to be to the point that the people are ready to be done with Jesus. Now, when I say people, please be mindful of certain religious leaders, and I don't think we need to lump all of them together. I don't think necessarily the Pharisees were terrible people. I believe they had some decent motives. The scribes weren't necessarily God-forsaken people either, but unfortunately, when we read the four Gospels together and we consider these religious leaders, they do kind of get lumped into a basket together that says they're a bunch of rotten apples. But in this moment, while we don't really get any additional planning and scheming to go out and to destroy Jesus, you can tell that it's only a matter of time before things boil over completely. In this moment, the question that's posed by the Pharisees and the scribes to Jesus seems minuscule compared to some of the things that we might raise questions about. After all, what is the big deal with, one, breaking the tradition of the elders, and specifically within that tradition of the elders, something related to washing of hands before one eats? Now, that little tidbit there, tradition of the elders, we're not talking about the Old Testament law and covenant. Because to throw that out, to say, well, just break whatever you want to, was nothing in Jesus' ministry. That was not his desire. He laid out very early on in his ministry here in Matthew's gospel, as it's reported to us, that he did not come to overthrow anything, destroy anything, to do anything that was directly opposed to the Old Testament law, but rather he came to fulfill the Old Testament covenant. 
In this moment, the issue that the Pharisees and the scribes were taking with Jesus' disciples was related to something called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders was basically priestly commentary, you might say, priestly discussion related to the law and how the law related to the various facets of life. To put it a little bit in different terms, the written law was the covenant that was handed down through Moses to the people. This would be what we would call the oral law or the oral traditions of the earliest leaders of God's people within that priestly realm. And for them to offer their oral interpretation, their teaching, their expounding upon the law, with time, that had come to hold an equal weight with the written law, the Old Testament covenant. And in some cases, it maybe had just a tiny bit more authority as far as the Jewish community was concerned. And so people became so concerned, so keyed up over, so bound up in minuscule regulations that were born out of the written law, but weren't necessarily the written law. They were a human being's interpretation of the law and how that law should be applied in these circumstances or those circumstances. And that's the issue that's being brought up here. It's not, why are the disciples breaking the law? Now, we dealt with that issue a few chapters ago when they were plucking heads of grain walking through a field on the Sabbath. But in this moment, they are bound up over this whole matter of hand washing. Now, it's interesting that all of this comes together when we're so very focused on hygiene right now whether it's the usage of hand sanitizer going in or out of a restaurant, washing our hands for so many seconds at a time, doing whatever it takes to try to keep ourselves clean, to protect us, to protect others during this time of pandemic. But in Jesus' time, and under the tradition of the elders, we're not talking about a time of pandemic. We're not talking about staying clean as in, oh, you've been out working in the field, you've been under the hood of a car, you've been doing this, your hands are filthy, get in there, wash them really good, wash them again, and then you can have some lunch. The matter of hand washing was really born out of the Old Testament regulations related to purity. Now, there are a lot of laws and regulations. You find those laid down in the book of Leviticus. I know that you love a good study of Leviticus. We'll get to that sooner than later. But Leviticus can be so very overwhelming because of its rules and regulations. But in the book of Leviticus, you find a lot of these little unclean versus unclean scenarios that are mapped out and all of the different prescriptions, if you will, for what one must do to become clean once again. Now, it's strange in our Western mindset, our way of thinking is so radically different from that of the Middle Eastern world. When we think of clean and unclean, we think of something that's been soiled, something that's contaminated, something that's tainted. But 
and the issue that we're dealing with in the text, it, it wasn't that. It, it could certainly be a matter of hygiene, don't get me wrong, but a lot of times it was what made one clean and acceptable before God versus things that could bring distance, separation, if you will, between one and his or her relationship to God. It's those kind of things that are outlined in the, oral, in the written law, but the oral law tried to take things to the, the finest, minute details. I mean, we're talking hair-splitting matters. And it had become very important to the Pharisees and the scribes, so much so that the regulations came to be more important than what we might call the relationship with God. The difference between religion and relationship. Now don't get me wrong, it's important to have the essential doctrines, teachings, beliefs that are fundamental, that are foundational to, to who we are as God's people. But if you think about it, we're a lot like the Pharisees and the scribes in that the things that divide us, the things that bring more dissension within local congregations, denominations, are simple things that really, at the end of the day, do not lead to our salvation. They do not really contribute anything to our relationship with God. They are things that we have just come to prefer, things that we would call traditions. But I want us to be careful, because there are a lot of people that say we need to do away with traditions. Tradition is important. Tradition reminds us who we are, where we came from. Here's where the danger begins to surface. It's when tradition becomes something known as traditionalism. It's almost like the tradition becomes the faith more than the faith the doctrines of the Bible, the person and work of Jesus Christ, when those things become more essential and have more time and energy put into those things, that's when we start to become like those Pharisees and scribes, when we're more worried about, well, is the carpet supposed to be this color or this color? Are we supposed to do this at this time or this time? Can we move these chairs here? Can we move those chairs there? There are a lot of little minuscule details that we chuckle about, but if we're not careful, they can become more essential to doing church than it becomes being the church and being in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Traditionalism had so consumed these religious leaders in this moment that they really could not see beyond their regulations and could not see beyond their tendency for trying to impose those regulations on other people. Yes, the law may have said, do this in order to be ritually clean and acceptable to God, but with time, these religious leaders had come and nitpicked the law so much that people were almost paranoid to do anything. Anything at all related to work on the Sabbath, anything related to practically anything in life. 
to show you just how minute and how nitpicked some of these things could be, uh, the case of dishes, for example, if, if certain dishes had been exposed to something that rendered them unclean, then anyone who ate from those dishes would become ceremonially unclean as well. The only problem was, how was someone to know that he or she was eating from dishes that had been exposed to something to contaminate them? The easy answer is, they didn't. You sort of just had to kind of be on edge and think, well, there's the potential this could be contaminated, so I better do what's necessary to make those dishes clean, to make myself clean, So you could see how this would lead to a certain paranoia to the average Jewish person. But what's amazing here is how Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, turned the tables on the religious leaders. Instead of responding to their question related to the disciples, he issued a question of his own and asked them, why were they breaking the commandments of God? Not the tradition of the elders, not that oral law that had been brought down throughout the centuries, but why were they breaking the direct commandments of God? Now, this particular commandment that we find is issued in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 12, where it says to honor your father and mother. We would think that's a very valuable thing to do in life not doing anything that could ruin the name, the reputation of our family, doing things that are respectful, making sure that our parents' needs are taken care of. After all, they did take care of us when we were coming along. But in this moment, Jesus takes issue with how they approach that law. You see, the religious leaders were really good applying the law in certain situations that were able to condemn other people, but forbid anything should be said or done to, be, to bring any kind of shame against their own personal practices. And that's the very thing that Jesus did in this moment. And you're probably thinking, well, how in the world, how did Jesus use this argument to kind of get even with what the religious leaders were bringing out. Well, it's this whole matter that actually comes up in Mark's gospel. Mark's account in chapter 7 of this same story gives us another little tidbit or two that's helpful in our interpretation of this moment in time within Matthew's gospel. You see, there were tendencies amongst the Jewish people to set aside certain portions of what they had as being considered special gifts to God. The word that's used there, it's over in Mark chapter 7 verse 11, is Corban. C-O-R-B-A-N, Corban. Now what in the world is Corban? And it's capitalized. Corban, if you find a footnote in a study Bible, if you look that up in a biblical dictionary you'll find was devoted to God, simply what Corbin meant. And so to declare that you had something, a piece of property, some kind of monetary amount that you had devoted to God meant that it was set apart for God alone. 
You could not go back on it and say, well, we've got this money that's been set aside for God, but you know what? The, the tent's leaking, or, or this needs repairing, or we need to buy another one of these, so we're going to take it out of that. No, once that, those resources, that land, that money had been designated as a special gift devoted to God, you couldn't go back on it. Now, making such a vow was not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's important to honor the vows that we make to God. But it was how and why some of the religious leaders did the things that they did. For example, if a person wanted to get around to sidestep his or her obligations to family then he or she could easily say, well, I, I would love to help mama and daddy in this situation, but I, I just don't have it right now. If I had something, I would be glad to help out, but, but you see that little bit that's over there, well, that's Corbin. That's been devoted to God, and I can't go back on that, and if I've made that vow, then there's no changing it. And so some people would use that argument as a way to get around taking care of family needs. Now the issue that Jesus took was the fact that it was okay for the religious leaders to be so caught up in hand washing, which was an oral tradition that had been handed down through the priests over the years, but yet a direct commandment of God to honor, to respect, to care for mother and father, it was perfectly acceptable to break the written law. Now, if you think about what it means to be God's people, what it means for us to live righteous lives, we know that a component of that is to be caring, considerate, compassionate toward other people. But in this moment, rather than being really compassionate and concerned about others, it became a matter of keeping your hands clean. Can you see where the issue lies in all of that? Can you see where the hypocrisy would come about? After all, when we think about honoring God with our lives, we do that by how we treat other people by how we fulfill our responsibilities to seeing that the needs of others are met. Whereas the religious leaders were setting aside Corbin, saying they were honoring God, well, what better way to honor God than to help someone in need? You're honoring God in word, but you're not really honoring God in your practice, Jesus seems to be saying to those leaders. And there, to close out that section, Jesus offers a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29 that says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. If you read the prophets in the Old Testament, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, and so forth, you'll find that there are a lot of issues taken with God's people, especially when it came to their relationship with God versus the reality of how that relationship unfolded. 
There were a lot of people who could speak the right language, who could talk about honoring God, loving God, worshiping God, but in their day-to-day practice, their lives proved that they were any and everything but a godly people. They were able to use the language of religion while being void of a relationship with God. And so here that quotation is made that even in Jesus' day and time, even hundreds of years removed from the words of those different prophetic works, God's people were still at it. They were still trying to play games in their relationship with God. Verse 10 builds on this theme and tells us the things that really do defile. Then he called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles Then the disciples approached him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard you say this? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into the pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then out through the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. It's very similar to something Jesus said just a few chapters ago when he indicated that you really know a tree by the quality and the kind of fruit that it bears. You'll know the real substance. You'll be able to tell how genuine or how fake something is based upon what is produced, what can be seen with the naked eye. And the same can be said for the individual life here. Instead of being caught up in regulations as far as this food is acceptable, this food is unclean, to wash hands, not wash hands, to do this, to not do this, Jesus says, these are not the essentials of having a relationship with my Father, but if we really want to get at things, we need to talk about the individual heart. It's not the food that you eat. If you eat barbecue, if you eat beef, if you eat this, if you eat that, if you do whatever, if you eat certain things, then it's going to make you a bad person. Now, certainly, certain foods may not be healthy for us. It may not be good on our overall physical well-being, but that's beside the point here. If I eat a hot dog today for lunch, it's not going to cause me to commit adultery this afternoon. Those evil intentions, those behaviors that we act out begin within us. It's about something inside coming out versus something external going in. 
That's the reason we can't blame someone else when we do something that is sinful against God. And even though we try to say, well, the devil made me do it, that only carries water in our hearts and our minds and makes us feel a little bit better. But the reality is it's here, it's at the core, it's at the center of our being that we truly exist, that God sees us for who we truly are as we truly are. And even though we may try to mask over, we may try to dress it up, clean it up, make it all look polished and brand new and impress other people, God sees through the facade. God sees down at the core of us and can tell, are we real, are we sincere, or are we fake and we're just trying to put on a show to impress other people? Jesus says, beware of those religious leaders because they're going to mislead you every time. They're like the blind leading the blind, and you feel like you're already a little bit misguided and misinformed. To follow them is only going to make things worse because they think they're pointing you in a relationship with God when in reality they're leading you in the opposite direction. I think there's a little bit of humor there when the disciples pose the question to Jesus, Jesus, did you know that you offended those guys? I mean, really, what would we expect? We expect Jesus and the religious leaders just to, to walk away, buddies, no harm, no foul, everything is good, let's go hang out this afternoon. No, Jesus was calling it as he saw it in that moment and really did not care if it quote-unquote offended those hypocritical religious leaders. He came to show the true way to God, a path that is straight and narrow, one that in spite of the disagreements with the religious leaders, one that was a sure fire path that would lead them to God each and every time, one that was born from God, one that was worked out in the ministry of God's Son, Jesus, not one that was made up of human traditions. Jesus says, leave those people alone and let's deal with the heart. Let's deal with personal matters that only God can help you with. And hand washing, sure, that may make your hands clean. It may make you satisfy some kind of a ritual obligation as a part of your religious duties, but... It doesn't do anything to change who you really are on the inside. And that's where God has to come in and do some serious dealing, some convicting, some changing. Verse 21 builds upon Jesus' ministry to the Gentile community. We know that Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. We've seen already how that ministry is primarily focused to the Jewish faithful, Jesus' own people. But we do find glimpses throughout Matthew's Gospel of that ministry expanding and branching out to other groups of people. In verse 21, it says that Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. 
But he did not answer her at all, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. It's an unusual story. It's one of those that kind of makes our eyes become really big when we see how Jesus handled the circumstances with this woman. But to set the stage for the story, Jesus withdrew. After that moment, that tense moment with the religious leaders, he didn't just go down the street somewhere else. He withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon which was located some 40 miles to the, the northwest of Galilee. It was a significant journey. It was something Jesus had to do on, that he had to do intentionally. He wasn't able to just simply say, well, we're going to walk down the street here. We're going to go next door. We're going to withdraw. And for him not to go to another Jewish territory, he didn't go south into Judea. He didn't go down into Jerusalem. That's going to be coming soon enough. But he withdrew to a Gentile region which is puzzling because, well, we know that there were tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. There were hard feelings. And why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, I think one little detail could be that Jesus was just about up to here with the religious leaders in the Jewish faith. And he knew that he needed to withdraw. He needed some time to maybe put things back into perspective to pray, to meditate, to teach the disciples one-on-one, to just get away, refresh himself, and then come back ready for that journey toward Jerusalem. We don't know the specifics of what took him there, but the purpose was to get away, and he did just that. He went where he knew there would be no other religious leaders trying to trick him, trying to trip him up. And while there, perhaps hoping not to interact with anybody or to have anybody calling out for his attention, we find that the very thing that obviously the disciples were not anticipating took place. Upon his arrival in the region, Jesus' disciples and Jesus were confronted by what's called a Canaanite woman. We're told elsewhere that she is from Syrian Phoenicia, also known as the Syrophoenician woman in the other gospel accounts. But when we look at this text, we find that she's referred to as a Canaanite woman. It means that she was a descendant of those people who were in the promised land when God's people were going about their conquest of the promised land. We might say an enemy of God's people because when the Children of Israel, when they moved into the promised land, when they began to take over various parts, they didn't necessarily destroy everything and everybody. There were some tendencies in the conquest of the land just to subdue people, to push a few people back to the fringes, and then over time they maintained some kind of a distant relationship with the people there in the land. 
So here we have one of God's enemies, if you will, one of those outsiders looking in, a woman approaching Jesus, a Jewish man in public, and requesting that he have mercy upon her. She refers to Jesus in two ways, Lord, and then in that messianic title of Son of David. This woman of Canaanite descent in a community 40 miles removed from the base of Jesus' ministry saw in Jesus something that expressed great faith on her part. Even while God's own people were rejecting his very son, even while the Jews were doing all that they could to discount and discredit the earthly ministry of Jesus, here is a Gentile coming with all of her heart, with all of her soul, and pouring that out before the Son of God on behalf of her daughter. What a beautiful image, a parent concerned not for her own personal health and well-being, but so concerned about this daughter, and she noticed in Jesus her last chance. If anybody can make this healing happen, it's going to be Jesus. But as we've tried to point out at other places, even amongst the Jewish people, Jesus wasn't one to simply go around doling out miracles just freely, saying, okay, I'm going to do this and do this and do... There are times when the people have to intentionally approach Jesus. It's not just walk up, Jesus is in the community, and he's going to do thus and such for you. It's about trying to draw faith out of people. And that's something that happens in this very moment because it's a very strange story and the fact that Jesus isn't all merciful, meek, and mild. He comes back at this woman and says, it's not fair to throw the children's food to the dogs. And so we're left scratching our heads and puzzling, did Jesus really call this woman a dog? That seems so uncharacteristic of the kind of Jesus that we know and that we've come to love throughout the Scriptures. And while the answer is yes, it's also a no, not really. That term dog was something very common in the Jewish perception of the Gentile people. They saw the Gentiles as people beyond the grace, the love, the understanding of God, people worthy of judgment. No room for them in God's kingdom was kind of the, the thinking of the average Jew. And so it really wasn't uncommon for some Jews to have those harsh feelings and to refer to the non-Jewish people as being dogs, if you will. Now, the word that's used there is not the kind of dog that was a scavenger, a street dog, if you will. It's a, it's a softer term, but still, when we think of the word dog, dog means dog to us. And I don't believe that Jesus in that moment was telling her that that's exactly what she was, but he was using some of the traditional Jewish thinking to see just how true this woman's faith was. Because the average Jew wouldn't go to a Gentile for anything, and the average Gentile wouldn't go to a Jew for anything. But here, in this moment, we find an outsider 
looking to Jesus and seeing something that God's very own covenant people were not willing to accept. Jesus was amazed. In fact, it says, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. That's a great portrait of faith, don't you think? A great image of a mother who was willing to go to whatever measures it took to bring about healing for her daughter. But the fact that this woman was willing to come back at Jesus and to say, yes, but even the dogs get some of the leftovers, they get some of the crumbs. Essentially, in this moment, the woman was saying, I may not be Jewish, I may never ever be Jewish, but... Just a small portion of what you have to offer is more than enough to satisfy the need that I'm approaching you with right here and right now. It's interesting to look at some of the traditions about bread and how bread was used in society. And one of the things before there were commercially made napkins, you use bread to fulfill such a role. You could use that bread to, to dab your fingers just a little bit. If they were dirty, if they were greasy, you could also use that bread to kind of pat your lips, to, to clean off your mouth. This woman was saying, look, I, I don't want the full banquet. I don't want the full feast, but if you'll, uh, if you'll give me one of those table napkins, I'll, uh, I'll be able to get a little bit of nourishment from that. It goes to show us how far a little bit of faith can truly go, that a little bit of faith can change things in magnificent ways in our world today. And it also shows us how Jesus' ministry, while the door hasn't been thrown completely wide open, it's continuing to inch closer and closer to being open. And this ministry, this good news is going to be not just for the Jewish faithful, but for all of humanity as well. Verse 29 almost become sort of a little connector, if you will, between one portion of a story and another portion of a story. It happens many times throughout Matthew's gospel where there'll be just a very broad stroke of the brush, Jesus going, interacting with the people, healing in various forms. And verse 29 says, After Jesus had left that place, he passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain where he sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the mute, and many others. And they put them at Jesus' feet, and he cured them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, and the maimed whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Now that last verse is kind of an interesting tidbit and very important to the story. We feel like we've, we've seen this, we've heard this time and again. It's just another healing summary of Jesus doing good things and then it sets the stage for the, the feeding of the 4,000. But I want you to look at that phrase, they praised the God of Israel. 
Here we find yet another illustration of the gospel ministry expanding out to the Gentile population. And that would have been really important, especially in Matthew's day and time. Matthew penning this gospel in the latter part of the first century as the church continued to develop, continued to find its footing in the world. And so there were many in the Jewish community that were concerned. What do we do with Gentiles? How do we assimilate Gentiles into the faith community when all we've known is our Jewish lifestyle, our Jewish traditions? Here we find that gospel is being opened up to other people. It's no longer exclusively a thing for the Jews. It started with the Jews, but now we're finding there's room for everybody within God's kingdom. And in this moment, we often say, well, it's just another group of Jews, but the fact that they praise the God of Israel... I believe that little tidbit here tells us that once again, Jesus was ministering in a predominantly Gentile area. It wasn't going to Tyre and Sidon and going back to Galilee, but he was continuing that work because if Jesus were ministering to Jewish people, why would the Jewish people have to praise the God of Israel? That little detail, I believe, indicates a predominantly Gentile audience here that Jesus was performing miracles amongst. Because this tidbit says that you have a group of people whose God is not the God of Israel praising that God of Israel, that Jewish God. And it's that healing moment that sets the stage for this feeding of the multitude. Now, to look at this text, we may think, well, we just read that a couple of chapters ago. Why do we need to go there again? There are some who will speculate and say, well, this is just the same story told a little bit differently. Maybe there were 4,000 men instead of 5,000 men. But yet again, when we look at the text and we find subtle details within the passage, we realize once again that we're talking about two different miraculous events. One that was amongst a Jewish population, as in the feeding of the 5,000, and one that was amongst a predominantly Gentile population here in the feeding of the 4,000. In verse 32 it says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for the crowd, for they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint along the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in the desert to feed so great a crowd? Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And two small fish, or a few small fish. Then, ordering the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves, the fish, and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all of them ate and were filled, and they took up the broken pieces that were left over, seven baskets full. Those who had eaten were 4,000 men besides women and children. After sending them away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. A lot of lessons can be learned very similar, very parallel to what we saw with the feeding of the 5,000. I won't go through all of those again. If you want to go back and look at those notes from the feeding of the 5,000, then I certainly encourage you to do so. 
But in this moment, we find some different tidbits in the story. One is the fact that the focus is upon the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. In the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who came and were like, okay, just send them away. It's getting late in the day. They're going to be hungry. Let them go find food. And Jesus poses the statement to them, well, why do we need to do that? You instead should give them something to eat. But here we find Jesus initiating the whole exchange. I've been with them. I'm concerned about them. They're going to be hungry. And of course, the disciples, in tradition, in typical uh, disciple fashion, they uh, are of that mentality. Well, what are we supposed to do about it? How are we going to be involved in meeting this need? This is a massive group of crowd. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to find the money, the resources we need to feed such a multitude? And Jesus poses the question, well, what do you have? And they say seven loaves and some fish. Again, something small, minuscule, seemingly insignificant, but it's what was available in that time and place, and it's what Jesus was willing to use. Now, something I want to point out, when we read the other account of the feeding of the 4,000, we find out that this took place in the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was located kind of to the, the west of the Sea of Galilee, and Deca means 10 in the Greek, and literally it means 10 cities. The Decapolis was a federation, if you will, of 10 independent city-states. They stood on their own, but yet they were small, yet they were independent at the same time. And it was a Gentile region. And so we find that Jesus' ministry has continued on, even after Tyre and Sidon, down through and closer to the Decapolis, he made his way. A few things that stand out in the text, not just the location being the Decapolis, the fact that Jesus ordered the people to be seated on the ground. When we read the feeding of the 5,000, it says that he ordered them to be seated on the grass. And so we're most likely reflecting two different seasons, one of spring and one of summer, where we have grass and we have a barren ground. We also find that in the end of the story that there were baskets that were taken up, and a lot of times we don't think about that detail. We just kind of truck along to the next passage, but the text tells us that baskets were taken up. Well, baskets in this account in Matthew 15 and in the account of the feeding of the 5,000s, there's two different words used there for baskets. In the feeding of the 5,000, it's the word for baskets that were a Jewish style of basket. Whereas in the feeding of the 4,000, this particular kind of basket was more of a Greek style of basket, something that we might consider a hamper of sorts. Two different kinds of baskets, one a Jewish, one a Greek. Again, Jesus ministering in a Gentile population. But it's also important to notice how many baskets were taken up. With the story of the 5,000, we're told that there were 12 basketfuls. Now, the number 12 within Jewish culture meant a full number, a complete number. It represented the people of God. Well, here we have 
seven loaves, but we also have seven baskets that are taken up. Well, guess what an important number was within the Greek culture? It was the number seven. It was a number that represented wholeness, completeness, perfection. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus as the bread of life was more than sufficient for the masses. And in the feeding here of the 4,000, Jesus as the bread of life was sufficient even for the Gentile population. A lot of times when we think about our ministry amongst people, we can become sort of exclusive. We get people who are just like us, people we can really relate to, people who look like us, talk like us, enjoy the same things that we like, and we do that to the exclusion of other people around us. But here we find three stories on end, the healing of a demon-possessed daughter, the curing of many people, and here the feeding of yet another multitude, all within the context of Gentile people. I believe that's a good word for us today. When we think about our ministry of the gospel, we have something that we simply cannot hold to ourselves. We have something that must go out to the world to the people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, may not have anything similar in common with us, but nevertheless, God has called us to those people, those places to do ministry. I think that's a good word for us to close on today because we know that our times are trying, they're difficult, Sometimes we wonder, are our churches going to grow? Are we going to make any kind of a difference, have an impact in the world around us? And the answer is, yes, all of that can happen, but we've got to be willing to be like Christ and be compassionate to all people in all circumstances and be willing to allow God to break down those walls, those barriers that come between us and those people who can be so very different from us. I've enjoyed being with you. Today. I hope that you've been blessed by our discussion around Matthew chapter 15, and I look forward to next week as we move into Matthew chapter 16. Would you bow with me as we're dismissed in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word, for the rich feast that we're able to have when we come to your word hungry and thirsty, desiring to know more of you and your plans and your purposes for our lives. God, we are grateful for these words, what they've been able to teach us today about what's really important about our faith and the difference between religion and relationship, and also the relationship between our ministry to those who are like us and a people who are so very different from us. Lord, give us open hearts, open eyes, open minds that we will see, that we will be as compassionate as Christ was when he lived and walked among us. May our focus be less on clean hands and more upon compassionate hearts. Lord, bless my sisters and brothers. Take care of them over these next several days until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you.